Welcome to Why Advice, a podcast aimed at financial clarity and demystifying financial advice. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Daniel. Good to be here again. All right. So today we're going to discuss personal insurance and you've been advising on insurance for over 40 years now. So it's fair to say you have a fairly deep understanding of how important insurance has been in some people's lives. Absolutely. It's ironic. It was actually 41 years ago yesterday that I wrote my first personal insurance application uh, for a lady that had been widowed that still had young children to support. So a bit of a milestone there? Absolutely, yeah, 41 years ago. That's very interesting. So I guess you're speaking for a fairly deep experience. This would be a pretty good podcast, I would think. So um, personal insurance can be part of the uh, holistic financial advice framework. It can be something a person takes out as a standalone or very commonly it is also held within superannuation. Yeah, absolutely. Look, insurance is uh, a type of planning uh, that's applicable to a very large number of the population, uh, particularly those, you know, early on starting out into their, you know, their adult lives, whether it be borrowing, you know, for a first house, whether it be, you know, the raising of young children, uh, whether it be having to, uh, you know, make sure they can cope with the commitments of educating those children. Um, there's a lot of a lot of reasons why insurance is important to people through their adult lives as as time passes and and it's something we certainly take very seriously when holistically planning for people uh, that we serve yeah so there's there's four types there's total and permanent disability there's uh, income protection um, there's life and there's critical illness or also known as trauma so when you're looking at someone's circumstances how do you actually assess what's required? I guess firstly, at the most basic level, um, all of those types of insurance cover um, should be put in place for the right people for the right reasons at the right time of their particular stage of life. Um, So uh, by way of example, if there's a dominant breadwinner in in a home, which is often the case, um, then a substantial amount of life insurance on that person, if the family have debts, if the family have young children, um, to me would seem to be very prudent and and managing a risk that the family may not be able to cope with if that dominant breadwinner were to die prematurely. Uh, it, it can devastate a family. So that's just one example where life insurance can be necessary. It, it might also be very necessary where there might be partners in a business where it might be that the skill sets of the partners uh, can't be replicated by other family members that might take their place in the event of an untimely death. So just another example of where life insurance can be very important. Uh, Total and permanent disablement insurance that you mentioned, um, it can be very much the same in terms of financial results as as, uh, premature death. But unfortunately, the poor insured gets to also experience the permanent state of disability. So not only do they have the financial worries uh, that go with their family unit, uh, but they also unfortunately get to experience the the horrible uh, health outcomes from that permanent disability. Uh, Critical illness insurance, uh, of course, was originally designed by insurers in South Africa and came off the back of work done by the first medicos to do 
heart transplant surgery. Uh, Dr. Christian Barnard and Dr. Marius Barnard, who were the participants in the first ever successful heart transplant, um, concluded after saving people's lives that whilst they'd done so, they'd actually ruined their financial lives. And, and it was actually through their work working with insurers in South Africa that critical illness insurance was first designed. And it was designed to provide cash to people that had had life-threatening health events occur where cash was needed to either provide them with the best of medical treatment or to provide them with time to recover from those awful life-threatening health events. And then lastly, as you mentioned, income protection insurance. Um, it, it's almost, to me, the number one priority for most families that rely on personal exertion income because when you think about most people as they go through their adult lives, whether it be buying their first home, acquiring motor vehicles, acquiring other personal possessions, whatever they might be, all of those things are possible because people actually earn an income. So to not have the ability to earn an income is something that would take away from them the opportunity to provide those necessities of life and indeed in some instances the toys of life that they might enjoy, but without an income, they can't do that. Income protection insurance is specifically designed to replace up to 80% of that lost income and, and some policies that are offered in the marketplace um, can pay right through to the age of 70, thereby replacing that, that, that income-earning lifetime that, that the person has actually had in front of them at the outset of their career. So uh, from, it, from our firm's perspective, income protection insurance, again, for the right people, for the right reasons at the right time, is an absolutely vital part of protecting a family's well-being. Yeah. So when you're, when you're actually looking at someone's circumstances, how do you actually assess what is required? Because there's, there's going to be situations where someone wants to take out one type of cover, they've got it in their mind, this is what they need. And then when they come in and you assess their situation um, and you, you tell them, look, um, actually need, this is a different type of cover that you actually need. Yeah. Uh, an interesting question. We actually try to turn that around. When we're talking to any client, We'll actually start with four very simple questions, but they're pretty, pretty blunt and frankly, they're not the most pleasant of questions to have to consider. Uh, but when talking with any prospective client, we will quite simply say to them, um, let's say their names are, are Bill and Betty for the purpose of the discussion. So Bill, if you were to die tomorrow, what financial position would you want Betty and the children to be in? And we let them describe the financial outcome that they'd rather see happen for their family. Uh, we'll then ask Betty the same sort of question. Uh, the same applies to total and permanent disablement. So Bill, if you could never work again tomorrow, financially, what would you want to have happen to your family? And again, we get them to describe that. So in effect, they'll give a qualitative answer and it might say something like, oh, I'd like to have the mortgage paid off and I'd like to have an income, you know, that's sufficient to meet the family's needs, you know, through to whatever age that might be. And, and ultimately, their qualitative answer can actually be quantified 
to specific numbers that'll actually deliver the outcome that they'd like to see occur for their family if they just happen to be the unlucky one where a major claim event might take place. So it's really about what the client wants to see happen. And then we just convert that back to numbers uh, to say, well, on the basis of what you wanted, which was ABC, this is the amount of money that needs to be made available so that ABC can definitely happen and you've got your family protected the way you would want them protected. So one of the things that we actually see on TV, a lot of these ads and, and they're about same sort of thing. Um, so what's, uh, what's the difference between taking in a policy through an advisor versus say watching an ad on TV and picking up the phone or going to their website and, and taking it out in, independently? Well, two things in particular. Firstly, a true fiduciary advisor is actually working for the client. Secondly, the person that's the end of a phone line in a call centre for an insurer is working solely for the insurer. Their job is to make a sale. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just an important distinction between the two. Um, secondly, the advisor's job is to counsel the client to actually ensure that they buy the cover that actually meets the needs that the client defines by answering those four questions about what would they want to have happen. The call centre person will want, to, will want to ask the person what they want as an amount of insurance. And they're just a completely different approach. One's designed to sell a policy that the client determined, that's what I think I need. The process of using a good advisor is actually making sure that the client's buying the cover that they need because the outcome that will ensue is what they would want for their family. Yeah, because the outcome is a key point. Because if you look back, there was, a, there was an ASIC report in 2016 and that found that there was a 70% higher rate of claim denials for a, you know, as we said, off TV, maybe buy it yourself policy versus a, an advised policy. Yeah, and, and I don't doubt that, that those statistics, A, were real and, and, and that they're indeed representative of, of the broader market as a whole because when an advisor sits down with a client and it, and it comes time to uh, firstly analyse the amount of cover that's needed, put forward the recommendations uh, that might be, be needed, there's an interim step between the two that a good advisor will actually take and that is to actually pose the client's questions about their current health and their previous health history. So before the cover's actually recommended, a good advisor will know a lot about the client's actual health history to guide them as to A, whether they're likely to be able to get the cover that they need. And if they've got some special circumstances, explain to them what cover may be available, whether special terms and conditions may apply, whether in fact, uh, a particular type of insurance cover they might want is not going to be available. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily happen when a, a, an individual in the community just rings up a call centre because what we've also found is with the advisor, all of the underwriting decision-making by the insurer is done before cover is actually granted. A lot of the uh, arrangements where 
cover is put into place by rigging a call centre, very few questions are asked and, and there are sort of big global catch-all questions that most clients or prospective clients don't really understand the gravity of. Um, and as a result, later, the insurers effectively do their underwriting at the time of claim. And that would explain why many more claims are denied because the insurer will rely on what the client said at the outset when maybe the client didn't actually understand the gravity of the question. Um, it's, it's super important. And, and, and I have a great story to tell, which I might share with you later, about a major claim that we had. And if it hadn't been for full disclosure uh, at, the, at the very outset, um, a disaster would have ensued. So there's also um, on the back end too, because say if you, you've got the, the taken out the policy with an advisor, um, presumably you're going to go back to the advisor when the if there's a claim being made, and they're probably going to be uh, someone who helps you guide through the process. I mean, because if you're making a claim, there's probably some sort of traumatic experience that you're having, and you can basically have that taken over by the advisor, and they can do the work for you. Absolutely. Uh, over 41 years, um, our firms had an involvement in many, many claims, and, and I personally have had you know significant involvement in multiple claims over the years. But, but one in particular um, really comes to memory so vividly. It was a Sunday night, a very long-term client uh, where husband and wife are well known to, to myself and my wife, Leone. Uh, our children have spent time together over the years. Um, as it turns out, this, this client lives in Sydney. Uh, he's a doctor. And, and one Sunday night, the phone rang and it was his wife on the phone. And I thought, wow, this is strange, Sunday night. And... Um, and she said, Peter, uh, you told me that if ever anything went wrong, that I had to ring you first. And her husband had actually had a stroke. And fortunately, uh, he was able to get medical treatment quickly, had the, the, the drugs that are necessary for, for people that have the unfortunate uh, stroke events. And, and he's ended up recovering really strongly. Yep. But it necessitated a long time off work a significant long period as well of less than full-time work and the claim that was paid out from his critical insurance policy actually saw that family through. Now, we walked them through every step of that process of the claim, made sure we got all of the right medical evidence in a timely fashion and, and when the final stage of that evidence was given to the insurer, that claim was paid in five days. Yeah, now, I can relate to you many other stories that aren't as, as, as good an outcome as that, uh, that we've heard about, read about, seen from other sources where the poor client didn't have an advocate on their side, in their corner working for them. Um, I, I'd like to say with hand on heart that it's really valuable to have a good advisor working alongside uh, a person that needs to make a claim to ensure the best outcome ensues. So we touched on uh, superannuation there earlier. So we're moving, moving away from the advised or generally advised um, policies, but so what are some of the benefits of having, having coverage in superannuation as opposed to uh, anywhere else? And they're very, they very much are advantages. Firstly, if you think about uh, most Australians that, that are employed, uh, are covered by 
the, what's called the superannuation guarantee charge. So employers put 9.5% of their salary into superannuation on behalf of the employee. Um, most funds offer insurance and certainly all the big funds, the likes of the industry funds and large corporate funds have, have group insurance schemes built into those superannuation fund arrangements. And, and the premiums and the cost of those uh, insurance cover that are provided um, can come out of either the account balance of the member or, or indeed from the contributions that are made on behalf of the member. So if you think about it, firstly, uh, the contributions that go in on behalf of the member are pre-tax contributions made by an employer. So that's better than paying for a premium out of your after-tax income, you know, from your hip pocket as it were. Um, and secondly, um, bought on a group basis through uh, a large super fund, the premiums tend to be lower. Uh, so there are, there are definite advantages. Um, there are some limitations though too. Um, group insurance schemes tend to have limitations within them that don't apply to individually purchased policies. So if you like, they're cheaper for a reason, maybe the quality is not quite as good as the individual product. But there's also the benefit that with those group schemes, there's usually no uh, underwriting questions that have to be asked. Whereas with individual policies uh, that are going to be issued, of course, there is individual underwriting uh, to be undertaken prior to cover being made available. So there's definite advantages to buying cover through super, but there are also some limitations and every investor, every financial consumer owes it to themselves to understand the difference and a good advisor will point that out to them. So that was, that was something I was going to touch on. You can, um, especially if you couldn't get cover outside, um, you're uninsurable for some reason, you may be able to find some coverage within superannuation. Is that true? It's certainly possible, but it's equally possible that if somebody joins a fund that offers group cover with known health uh, conditions that would preclude them from getting cover. If a claim event happens certainly within a, 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 an, an agreed period that's within that group policy, uh, then maybe cover won't be provided. So there's the potential there to get cover in the longer term, uh, but certainly most group schemes would preclude claims that arise where a member knows about a pre-existing event or a pre-existing condition and joins the scheme principally for the purpose of getting cover when they otherwise wouldn't be able to. So when it actually comes to making a claim, can you generally outline what, what is involved? Well, certainly there has to have been some sort of health event. Um, so it's important to understand what the, the health event actually is, the clinical definitions of that event, the severity of the event, the medical test results that are available, indeed the testing that was done. Um, so all of that medical evidence will literally be the foundation stone of whether a claim ends up being paid. There will also be the need to revisit the evidence that was given at the very outset, particularly with an individual policy that's issued uh, for a particular insured. And, and then of course, there's just a procedural 
process that has to happen with claims. So firstly, there will be an initial claim form. That claim form will require certain amounts of evidence. Then there'll be the need to gather further evidence, you know, that that is required for a proper assessment of that claim. And, and there's, there's an obligation on all the insurers to communicate uh, with clients in a timely and reasonable way. And, and so following that process step by step, um, it, it's, it's a process that can be managed well. For many clients, it's a, it seems overbearing and they're threatened and, and obviously you know, not at their best because of the health event that may have occurred, whether it be to them or, or to a loved one that might have died. Uh, and that's where having an advisor to help nurse their way through that process is, is so incredibly valuable. Uh, and I just want to go back to um, the issue of the, the evidence that's gathered in the first instance. I had a personal experience with uh, an individual that filled out a, an application form for life insurance, disability insurance, and total and permanent disability insurance. This was back in 1994. Young guy, 34 years old, ran his own building and construction company, um, married three children under the age of seven, uh, just built a new home, substantial mortgage, substantial ongoing debts as part of the, uh, the, the ongoing operation of their business. Um, and he saw the sense in buying a substantial amount of life insurance. His wife was a stay-at-home mum and she really couldn't do anything in terms of running the business uh, were he to be absent. Um, so he made the application. The cover was issued. On the application form, he did not disclose uh, a particular issue with respect to headaches that had been prevalent in the preceding couple of months. But luckily, he was sent for a full medical because of the large amount of cover that he'd applied for. Um, he went to his GP. His GP noted that he'd had those headaches, noted that he'd been sent to a specialist, a, a neurologist who did a full MRI and they could find no underlying cause for those headaches, deemed it to be transient. The headaches went away and the claim was paid again in under a week. From, from the final arrival of all of the medical evidence. So the full disclosure at the outset meant claim was paid. A claim that might have, a policy that might have been bought over the phone without all of that detailed investigation may well have led to a claim being denied because the insurer was not made aware by the insured that, that those headache events had occurred. So, yeah, it's, it's obviously quite complex and, you know, the, the beginning needs an advocate and the, uh, the claim needs an advocate. And on that advocacy, we've, we've noticed that uh, recently lawyers have moved quite heavily into the space. And it's, in a, in a way, it's funny and it's sad how attention on the questionable behaviour of one industry, in this instance, financial advice brings an opportunity for questionable behaviour to flourish in another industry. Uh, so obviously people are, are wary of financial advisors after the Banking Royal Commission. So we've seen lawyers... Um, in the wake of that, positioning themselves as the trusted professional to help someone secure, you know, uh, an insurance payout, a superannuation insurance payout. And you can actually tell it's playing, preying on people's lack of understanding because on some occasions, lawyers have been uh, known to charge an astronomical amount, sometimes uh, 10 to 25% of a claim, what is essentially, in most cases, um, a routine job on the 
not so much for the person making the claim, but it's a routine job for someone who has the experience um, and it doesn't necessarily require a lawyer. So um, just as a little bit of community service, I guess, could you briefly outline a very sort of rough uh, cost figure for a routine payout and something that's obviously not going to be 10 to 25% of a $100,000 or $200,000, $300,000 claim? Well, I think there's a couple of angles I'd like to tackle that from. Firstly, the, the idea of the, the no-win, no-fee uh, concept that a lot of lawyers promote, uh, which generally involves a significant percentage of the claim, as you've alluded to, and I've, I've heard percentage figures of higher than 25%, I can assure right. you. I think, firstly, um, that, that, for me, doesn't actually pass the smell test. You know, um, why would somebody uh, with a legal profession training, you know, that, that generally tend to charge either by the hour or for specific services offered, why would they do that? Um, and I think it's because, you know, it, it, it does lead to very large, you know, fee claims. Well, we've heard um, of, that, uh, there's an occasion where I heard there was a $5,000 uh, photocopying charge in one instance. I, I don't doubt that that's true. I don't doubt that that's true for a minute and certainly very excessive. But, but the other side of that that really does concern me is with the greatest of respect to the law profession, and I've got a number of lawyers as friends, um, that they're not necessarily actually expert in not so much insurance law, but actually how policy wordings need to be applied to particular claim events. And there's one in particular from a colleague uh, of mine, his firm's based in Cairns in Queensland, and, and they, they had a couple come to them uh, in the most dire of straits. The husband had weeks to live um, and the whole process of an income protection claim, a critical illness claim, and then a terminal illness claim had just gone from debacle to debacle right from the beginning um, because they didn't have someone working for them that really understood how those policies work. And in the end, the insurer made an offer of what they should accept. Actually, there were two insurers involved. The insurers made offers of what they should accept. And with about, I think, three months to go before the chap eventually died, they went to this law firm and said, yeah, we can take this over for you on a, you know, a percentage of, of, of the, the payout. And, and they convinced them to settle on, on these particular offers. And then the same people at the last minute, a friend said, gee, that, that doesn't seem like much for what you've been through and what you've, you know, what's ahead. And they recommended them go and visit our advisor uh, a colleague. And the advisor colleague found that the lawyers got the understanding of the income protection policy wrong. They didn't get the definitions of total and permanent disability right. They didn't get the definitions of what, this, what constituted loss of earnings and what, and, and what constituted pain and suffering. And as a result, they were going to preclude the widow from any sort of social security benefit on an ongoing basis. And they got the whole claim process completely overturned. Clients got paid more than double what the lawyers had told them to accept on a no win, no fee basis. And the widow today still gets an ongoing social security pension that she would otherwise not have got. Um, so 
that's just one example of where, you know, with the greatest of respect to the law profession, the practitioners that were involved acting for that couple actually didn't know enough of what they needed to know to get the client the right outcome. There's something else there too. ASIC has actually uh, recently made comment about this, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's a new piece of legislation that's uh, just, it's either in the parliament or it's just gone through the parliament. In fact, I think the latter, I think it's actually been passed into law, uh, that anyone that wants to act for an insured who's wanting to make a claim, so a claims provision service, actually will have to have an Australian financial services licence. And I suspect on some level, uh, this is ASIC saying, well, the lawyers that want to get involved in making insurance claims for people really should have to adhere to the same standards as financial advisors do in terms of their AFSL obligations under the Corporations Act. I think it's a really good thing, uh, and I think it may actually see a number of lawyers say, well, maybe this is not a space we do actually want to act in, um, and it may see a number of them take the steps to go and get the AFSL licensing that's required because they actually do want to do the right thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it just comes down to the uh, it's kind of fiduciary versus the person who just wants to uh, clip the ticket, really. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, when you think about insurance claims, you know, they can be very large amounts of money. So yeah. getting a reasonable percentage of a, a very large check, you know, can be pretty lucrative. Yeah. All right. So l l talking about outcomes, I was just wondering if you could uh, discuss, you know, some of the most positive outcomes you've seen. And, and we, we know there's no positive outcomes from an insurance payment, but if there has been an insurance payment, it may have saved a lifestyle, lifestyle an education, a house, um, provided income. So can you just uh, go through some of your more positive sure. stories? Sure. Well, look, um, firstly, I've touched on the, the, the critical illness claim with our, our, our doctor client that had the stroke, uh, which turned out to be a great event. And we've had multiple major claims over the years, but a couple of others that, that come to mind. I mentioned uh, the builder, you know, who, who the, the life insurance payout, paid out the mortgage for his wife, guaranteed her an income for 20 years, guaranteed the education of their children, you know, and, and guaranteed them funds to wind up their business, you know, in an orderly fashion. So, you know, that, that was absolutely a great outcome. But another one is actually a close friend of mine, a close friend that unfortunately suffered a significant heart attack. Um, during that heart attack event, um, there was actually a lack of oxygen transferred to the brain. Um, this guy's a really smart businessman. Um, he unfortunately, you know, uh, was left with some residual uh, brain function impairment. His, his higher order thinking was not what it was before the event. Luckily, he's lived on, uh, and today he's quite healthy. Otherwise, it's 15 years on. But we had a 12-year income protection claim in excess of a million dollars paid out. And, and he has said quite publicly uh, to friends in public forums and the like, uh, that firstly, the trauma insurance uh, payout uh, allowed, if you like, a reset of, of their affairs. And then the income protection underpinned their lifestyle for 12 years while their other assets, including superannuation and the like, continued to build up 
to the point where now he's past his retirement time. His superannuation assets are now delivering, you know, his and his wife's lifestyle, but it was the income protection insurance that actually saved that lifestyle. So, you know, for me, they're the three that come to mind so readily. A, a wonderful outcome from a tragedy, you know, of a, of a young father dying prematurely, you know, a wonderful outcome from, from a, a, a committed medical professional that served thousands of people over the years, you know, where his insurance, you know, allowed him to go through firstly the event without financial harm, go through the recovery, the ability to get back to serving patients as he does now. And, and, and thirdly, you know, my good friend whose uh, who's income protection policy just saved the family's lifestyle and secured their retirement years. You know, they, they've been some of the proudest moments of my, my whole working career over the last 41 years. Yeah, so great stories. You know, and in, in effect, it's really just offering certainty, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, none of us have got any guarantees. You know, it's been said before, we're all one heartbeat away from the end of our lives at some point. Um, and we don't know. We've got no guarantees. Some people are really lucky, you know, whether it be genetically, um, you know, manufactured in a way that they live to you know, over 100 years of age. And some people, you know, that are taken just so prematurely. I, only earlier today, I got a message sent through from a colleague from Christchurch in New Zealand. Um, she's, she was two years younger than me. Uh, and uh, in 2017, uh, we were in the Napa Valley together at a conference. Uh, she had a persistent cough. And, and, you know, I actually spoke with her saying, hey, you know, you, you don't sound great. And uh, what, what have you done about, you know, getting treated? And, and she described what she did. Well, she went back to Christchurch, had a whole series of other tests. And lo and behold, two months later, she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And, uh, you know, today is the second, second anniversary, oh, sorry, third anniversary of her passing. You know, none of us have got any guarantees. Um, insurance is really important for the right people, for the right reasons at the right time. And unless you've got a guarantee on life, and if you do care for those that are you know, part of your family, um, then, then insurance is usually an important part of a sound financial plan. So just wondering on that, have you, the flip side of a positive outcome, have you seen someone who's probably dismissed the need for insurance and then found themselves um, in, a, in a very poor situation because of it? Absolutely. And I've got to say, um, it, it, it actually taxed me personally. Uh, one particular event comes to mind, and, and that was a, a very clever, a, another doctor client of ours. Um, he, he, he bought life insurance, bought permanent disability insurance, bought income protection insurance, but when we spoke about critical illness insurance, uh, this is a very clever guy with very specific training in the field of medicine. He, he rationalised that the chances of a critical illness claim were not high enough to warrant the cost. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, lo and behold, about 15 months later, he rang me saying, look, I need to make a claim on the income protection insurance. Uh, and I said to him, um, I won't use his name, um, tell me what's actually happened. And, and he said, oh, he said, I've had this inflammatory condition. I've, I've, I've lost the, the use of my right arm and, and it's gone on now for a couple of weeks. Um, 
But uh, I think, you know, it, it's going to come good. There's, there's some signs that uh, it's coming good. And I said to him, uh, I said, gee, oh, I'm pleased you just said that because the instant you described the loss of the function of your arm, I was sure you were going to tell me it was MS. Yep. And the, and the phone went quiet. And he said, Peter, actually, I didn't really want to let on, but it is MS. And that's nearly 20 years ago now. And the outcome hasn't been that great. Yeah. Um, and, and I've reflected on, you know, was there any ever other evidence that I could have given to him to help convince him that, you know, it was a, an insurable risk that he should give to an insurer? You know, I've reflected on, you know, that he was a very clever guy with, you know, medical training, he rationalised it himself. He made a deliberate decision. Uh, but I still look back wishing so much for both he and his wife that he had taken the advice that it was something he should ensure. So I guess, I guess on that point, is, um, is there a point where a person doesn't require insurance? Maybe they have no dependents, they have a substantial amount of wealth, essentially they... Uh, where that becomes a self-insurance policy? Absolutely. Uh, if we think about uh, uh, any, any young person's life, they've got a certain amount of human capital. It's basically the amount of years they've got ahead of them multiplied by the amount they can earn over those years. Uh, and, and, and when they might partner and you know, eventually have a family, that, that concept of human capital still applies for the remainder of their working lives. So as someone ages, what tends to happen is their, their human capital will shrink. Um, and if they are prudent and they save and they invest and their superannuation grows and they pay down debt, their investment capital will grow. And so eventually most people get to a point where insurance no longer becomes a requirement. And quite simply, <coughs> That's why, and I think I've used it three times already in this, um, this podcast, people should insure for the right reasons at the right time and it should be for the right people. And, and when you've got all the investment capital you need and you don't have to worry about human capital, maybe you don't need to insure at all. This podcast is for informational purposes only and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances. The circumstances of each investor are different and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on the podcast to make investment decisions and should always seek professional advice. The hosts and guests of the podcast may have positions in securities mentioned or discussed. Mansell Financial Group is an authorised representative number 226266 and credit representative number 403187 of FYG Planners Proprietary Limited, AFSL ACL number 224543. Thank you for listening to Why Advice.